Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Thea Lenarduz is here. We're ready to go. I just mentioned something about the shriek of discontent being lessened, if only for a second. And in that spirit. And in that spirit, we are approaching this podcast. I had, my whole family had Noro this week. I'm sorry. Uh, so that's three children, both parents. Yeah. And I have felt off food. Really? You know me, yeah. my, I'm not. My relationship with food is troubling at the best of times. Yeah. I would take the pill. You have a functional relationship yeah. with food. Yeah, you would never take the pill, would you? No. I would take the pill. And God, I would take the pill now. Yeah. I just don't... I think more than ever now, I just there's no food I want to eat. Well, I think the general rule with... Because I was ill over Christmas and completely went off food. And the general rule with anything, as far as I go with it anyway, is eat whatever you want, as much of it as you want. And just so don't, th- don't I, even think about it. Don't even think about it. I just had I just had a crunchy, oh. for, yeah, just because I wasn't really hungry, and I thought, well, that'll do. How, it's really cr- depressing, but I, I'm, I'm now ha- high on sugar. Yeah, was the crunchy like a? Did that feel good? It was very nostalgic. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a mad, <laughs> so Madeline moment. Anything? Yeah, exactly. Anything? Anything that you fancy? Am I allowed it. pasta and marmite? You probably are. I mean, a staple for me when I'm ill is um, is pasta with uh, pasta in bianco, so it's white pasta in the white <laughs> white pasta what just is pasta it? with butter basically and salt and pepper yeah a bit cheese? Of salt and pepper. if you're feeling bold yeah parmesan well i mean cheese isn't going to help a, a, a kind no. of a troubled digestive system no. it'd be nicer but if you fancy it if you yeah. feel you can ha- have it then my mum used to say a little bit of what you fancied as you good <laughs> exactly exactly that feels like an italian proverb must be must be must somewhere. be all right i feel better now <laughs> That the shriek of dis- the shriek of discontent has got even less in my head. <laughs> have a crunchy, go have all a crunchy. out. Everyone sponsored sit- by crunchy. Yeah, sit back, enjoy this podcast, have a crunchy. <laughs> uh, here's the bit where I not only encourage you to eat chocolate, but also to subscribe to the TLS. Use this special offer code and get on board the tlscouk forward slash podcast offer. That's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or five dollars. Coming up this week, we have a design special of the newly designed TLS, looking at all sorts of aspects aspects around how things are rendered fit for purpose. Keith Miller will be here to tell us about Charlotte Perrion, as Thea would exuberantly say, the designer who lived for almost the whole 20th century. Why does she matter? Stanley Donwood is an artist, author and designer of album covers, including for Radiohead. He advocates for this most democratic of artworks. And did Byron have an eating disorder? And should we care? Emily A. Bernhard Jackson has the answers. And I love Byron anyway, so why not talk about him for a bit? Byron's Don Juan is full of relish about consumption of wine and feasts and so on, but occasionally something more sinister. So Juan's spaniel, spite of his entreating, was killed and portioned out for present eating. Things get worse during a bad time on a boat. Part was divided, part thrown in the sea, and such things as the entrails and the brains regaled two sharks who followed o'er the billow. The sailors ate the rest of poor Pedrillo. 
It's not really relevant, but I wanted to read it out anyway. And it's almost relevant, as this week Emily A. Bernhard Jackson has reviewed a new book called The Private Life of Lord Byron by Anthony Peaty, which argues that all of Byron's works can be explained as the result of one overarching mental problem, his disordered eating, or maybe one or two others as well. Emily's here to explain more. Emily, hello. Hello. Before we start talking about that, your first paragraph tells us of your fantasy of romantic poets in therapy. Well, someone's fantasy, but... <laughs> so, the idea, yes. so, who's your, so the idea is that Keats could have, if he'd been properly counselled, could have left off Fanny Braun. Well, he could have not written her those, what I find to be very disturbing letters. Yeah, well, they are yeah. disturbing, aren't they? I think all of them, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why in the modern day there's often a sense that poets need to be crazy. Yeah. I think that this first begins with the romantics, all of whom in different ways, I would say, yeah, could have done with some therapy. But there's an argument which I think you're resisting here, which the book doesn't resist, is that Byron, in all his wondrous eccentric glory, can be reduced to what amounts to a pathology. Do you disagree with that in principle, that he must be more than a pathological uh, explanation for him? Yeah, I do disagree with that. I disagree with it because I don't think anybody can reduce, be reduced to a pathological explanation. And I think that, again, something that often sort of slips out of the mind when talking about authors is that, after all, they are just people. They eat lunch, put on their socks. I think there is a kind of tendency for readers to forget the way in which what we're reading was produced just by a person. And I think Byron... Particularly with Byron, is because he's, he's so lionised. Yes. And... Yeah, but he, he was so strange, and I was going to say so determinedly strange, but I'm not sure that's true. But he was so odd that I think there is a desire to, to reduce him. It, he must be explicable by one or two things, but I don't think he was. I don't what, think anyone is. What of the oddness? What kind of oddness, just to refresh well, our memories? It, he was possibly manic depressive. He was certainly depressive, and he might have been manic. That's it's, Retrospective diagnosis is always risky, I think. He both loved and disliked people extremely. Yeah. Undoubtedly, the way in which he was strangest was that he had an affair with his half-sister, yeah. What is strange about that is that he doesn't seem to have done it for any moral or immoral reason. That is, he liked his sister and wanted to sleep with her, and so he did. Yeah. And whereas I think the majority of people would either, would wrestle to some degree with the morality of that, he doesn't seem to have done that at least before he slept with her. And he was horrible to his wife, really, wasn't he? I mean, Yeah, he was, he was horrible. To, he was not a nice man. Really, and yet in some respects, possibly he was. You yes, because he goes off to fight in Greece, and he adopts a, a Muslim girl at one point, I think, and pays for it. And he spends a lot of money looking after. There seems to be a generosity to him in some respects. You know, I always say Byron liked peoples, but he didn't like people. That's interesting. And Lytton Strachey said that he didn't think that Byron was capable of having a real friend that the kind of connection and sense of equality that a friendship requires, Byron simply couldn't manage. And I think that's true. He was very generous, but I don't think that he was a man who was made to be with other people for long amounts of time. There's one story that when his wife was pregnant, he took a room beneath her bedroom and spent the night throwing bottles at the ceiling so she couldn't sleep. Is that not true? That's not exactly true. Go on. Okay. <laughs> He was in the living room yeah. while she was giving birth, so that makes it even worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what he was actually doing was celebrating this fact with a friend by drinking mixed drinks, and he was knocking the top of seltzer bottles off with his cane. So he would go whack, and it would go all over the place. While yes, it's not. Birth. Yes, while she was giving birth. Um, the book argues for these pathologies. Can we just what 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 pathology? The main one is an eating disorder. Yes, PT thinks that Byron had something that he calls heroic anorexia, which is essentially an anorexia that posits that control of the body is a kind of heroic act. Is that his own coinage? I believe so. It sounds like a version of anorexia generally, which is sounds... the idea that it's a system of control rather than than highly well. offensive. <laughs> um, well, this is. I mean. 
this is very complex, right? I mean, anorexia is commonly seen as a way of exerting power yeah. over yourself because you have no other kind of power. But yeah, there's something a little uncomfortable. And do you? About so, so his argument is that from there, a, a lot of lots of other things flowed. Is that the argument? Well, or? his idea is that Byron felt over maternalized by his mother, his hovering mother, and that kind of a way of gaining control over himself was this dieting, which was also a way of making himself less of a child. The difficulty, I should say, is that he makes this assertion a lot, but he is not very good at giving evidence. And why can't that just be a symptom of a complex individual anyway, that Byron may have had many things going on in his life, of which one of them may well have been um, issues with food, which may well have a connection to certain control issues, but that's a tenth or a fiftieth of his of his personality. That seems yeah, more plausible. Yeah, I think that's true. It? And I think the thing that Petey doesn't really take into account, which I think is more important, is that Byron was a fat little kid, and I think that if you have and not a not a plump little kid, he was fat, and I think that once you have been fat in a world that prizes slenderness and you experience that difference, then you will do a lot to cling on to slenderness. But what does that really have to do with Don Juan uh, or any of the uh, of the works? I only have Don Juan because I have it in my mind because I read it this year. But, you know, this is a piece of art, magnificently constructed, you know, a, a towering achievement of poetry. Do we need to draw a thick line in felt tip that says the man who created this had mummy issues and daddy issues and daddy issues yes. Harold Bloom's why I don't like Harold, why I found Harold Bloom so annoying which was, was that Keats have to be wrestling with Milton and wanted to strangle him uh, it's just everything seems like that just seems like a very oversimplification of the complex web of human relationships well now you're asking me to take on the burden of every critic let's go after and... Bloom for a bit he's dead he can't okay so this is what I would say I would say we are who we were and that means that we are who we were when we were a child, and we are who we were last week, and we are who we were two minutes ago when we were eating a ham sandwich. And for that reason, I think that, yes, if you want to understand an author, that the author's selfhood must come into it. But I also think that if that were the case, then everyone would be a wildly successful author. Yeah. So there's something that great authors do, and I know that's a loaded term, but there's something that great authors do that ordinary people do not do. And so I would say... I think we have to allow that yeah. term. I mean, I, I'm very conscious. I, I, I think I'm rather fond of notions of genius. People don't like it. Me too. But, you know, I think Shakespeare was a genius. Probably, uh, yeah. I uh, mean, yes. I'm, I'm. You know what? Fine. I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and I understand transcendence. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I, when I first read Don Juan this year, I genuinely felt I was in the presence of just a greatness of yeah, mind, a, 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 just a, a cleverness. And I love clever. I think cleverness is such a great thing. And look, he may have all sorts of character flaws, which we can, and I'm sure his biographies get into. But well, he okay. First of all, yes, he was extremely clever. And I'm really, really glad that you think that because I think it too. However, in Don Juan specifically, there are all sorts of jabs, for example, at his wife. Yeah. So you can make an argument that people often do make, which is he brought it up. Yeah. He, he, yeah he, so now it has to be considered. Well, he's the kind of modern, everyone says this is a cliche, but I'm sure it's probably true. One of the first, you know, I woke up in the morning, I, I was famous. He's a celebrity and he, he knew he was a celebrity. I mean, the other great thing about Don Juan is the pops at rival poets oh, yeah excellent. well can i also like say Tedsworth. he found himself extremely interesting yeah this is one of the things that's extraordinary about byron is that he really used himself as objective evidence to understand the self and he was genuinely interested in that yeah yeah he did take a pop at a lot of other poets he was what samuel johnson's calls samuel johnson calls a good hater yeah he really was it reminds me of honestly it reminds me of rap the beginning the epi the, the prologue to don juan where he has a go at the late poets and he has a go at bob southey and he yeah. says you know talks about him being a dry bob which means sex without ejaculation and it's a rap battle it reminded me of, it's like eight mile it's you know he sort of <laughs> takes on his he takes on his adversaries and he defeats them with his wit so he's he's creating a, a, a public self to be to be poked at isn't he he is on the other hand you could say a great poet does not take notice 
Well, that's of maybe true. Common other poets. But maybe that's why we're so fascinated by him. Why you? Why we want to talk about him? Because he has a lot well, that of that and all the sex. That and, yeah, <laughs> but we don't know anything. We don't know anything about Shakespeare really. Very little about him. We know some things, but not very. But Byron, we know a lot about because there's sex and there's incest and there's, there's newspaper articles yeah i mean he you know we don't get a lot of poets who are on the front pages of newspapers and he anymore want, and he wanted that do you think i think he wanted it like a lot of celebrities he wanted it until it was underway and then he realized what a mistake it was um when he lived in switzerland people used to peer across the lake into his house with telescopes and i don't really think anybody wants that when it's happening no did he need that? I mean, or are yes, we now, are that's we, certainly true. Are he we absolutely now, are we now pathologizing? Are we sort of armchair, you know, psychoanalyzing and saying this this little fat, club-footed, possibly suppressed, well, not even possibly, you know. Well, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> One, not little. He was actually, a, yes, he was five foot eight and a half, that's but definitely. everybody was about two inches shorter. <laughs> five so, foot eight and a half is not little. It's it little. is by your standard. Yeah, it's it's little standard. today, yeah, but you have to add it. No, he's not. He was five foot ten. Yeah, and he didn't have a club foot. Everybody thinks he had a club foot, but he didn't have a club foot. He seems to have had a form of cerebral palsy. Really, really. Mm -hmm. If you had something wrong with your leg or your foot in that period, they called it a club foot. Uh. But when you see his boots, he had to wear inner boots. If anybody wants to talk about Byron's pathology, they should really talk about his leg. Yeah. That I mean, he had a terrible... As a child, they tried to twist it back yeah. into normal form. But when you see his inner boots, you can see that a club foot looks like a club. Yeah. And he didn't have that. Didn't he have had that. an elong, a foot that curved inward and upward on the inside. He's a man to whom myths attach. Though, yes, he is. That's Absolutely. How about this for some pop psychology? If he lived in a society where he could have found love with another man easily more easily he would have been happier his, his the trajectory of his life would have been different how much of what we're talking about here for him as for so many artists actually when you you look at it he was never allowed to express what he felt in that regard and that must have had some sort of psychological impact upon him do we buy that as an argument to some degree i don't think that byron was gay but he had same-sex relationships that doesn't mean he was gay. No, but I mean... What, he, he I don't had... even think he was bisexual. I think Byron had an understanding of sexuality that in... We love labels. Yeah. We love them. And I think Byron had an understanding of sexuality that defied labels. But he had to write coded letters back from the Mediterranean about sex, he did. sexual... I mean, I'm not going to say that he didn't have sex with boys. No. He did have sex and he had with to, boys. And he had to conceal that and, and, he did. and code it. So Do I think that he would have been happier if he'd been allowed to be the full person that he was? Yes, absolutely. Do I think he would have been happier if he'd been allowed to explore his full sexuality? Yes, absolutely. But you there's no point in late. But you're, well, it's you're, not just that. I mean, I wonder then what might have happened. You know, Freud argues that art comes out of that kind of repression. So maybe he, like all the other romantics, as I suggest in the yeah. first paragraph, maybe he would have been a worse poet for it. Yeah. Or maybe not. I mean, he, he I was going to say something that I actually, in the middle of saying it, I suddenly realized I didn't think was true. Go on, say it anyway. Uh, I was going to say, but it is not true. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't think that he was interested in being very nice to people. But I don't think that's true. I think he was interested in being very nice to people. But he just wasn't. He just didn't manage He it. was sometimes. I And he says this himself in his work. And I, I do think that this is true. I don't think that he had, you know, when you sort of go, who am I? You know when you have those moments when you're like, who am I really? Am I this person? I think he might have asked himself that question, but I don't think that he had any self, any, any like he real... Didn't know the answer. I don't think he knew the answer, and I'm not sure there was an answer. Can we and say that... that in part because he had become such a celebrity, he kind no, of started to I believe... No, I just think that he... When I think of Byron, I think of someone who was in his work and in his in his journals, I, I imagine in his head, was an extremely honest man about everything except how unkind he could be to other people. Right. That's true of a lot of people, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, so. Can we say, because this is a book that you've, you've, you've criticised fairly frankly, but it does allow us to have a conversation about Byron. It's good yes, on... absolutely. So the virtue of it is we're endlessly fascinated by Byron, as we've probably demonstrated in the last 20 minutes or so. <laughs> It does enable us to get into who... I mean, we, don't, we might not buy his theories, PT, but he gets us into the Byron because he's good on the sources and... Oh, 
absolutely. I mean, I do say that at the end of the review. I think that one thing that this book does that's just a huge boon to Byron's studies is it makes it plain that we need a new scholarly biography of Byron. We have so many sources now about his same-sex relationships, about what he did politically in Italy. Roderick Beaton produced a book which makes all sorts of interesting arguments about what Byron was doing in the Greek Revolutionary War. And I feel that one thing that Petey does really well is the book essentially shows how much we need a new biography. Or how much we regret the uh, autobiography being consigned to the... Well, that was very unfortunate. (laughs) What was it? What was in it that was so bad? Probably nothing. Nothing. Uh, Nothing much. Yeah, that's the thing. Lawyers and publishers. And changing morals. We would probably just be like this. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, Yeah, it's fine. Good luck to him. Yeah. Well, I, I love Byron. I love talking about Byron. I love reading your piece about Me Byron. Too. I'm a, so glad. It's been a great joy. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for coming in. Sure, my pleasure. Stanley Donwood has a pretty hip CV as these things go. He's an artist who's created artwork for Radiohead with singer Tom York. He also works with Nature Wonderkind and one-time TLS fiction reviewer Rob McFarlane. This week in the TLS, he's made the case for the cultural value of album covers, which in the second half of the last century became, he argues, legitimate works of art themselves and record shops perhaps the first genuinely democratic art galleries. It's a fine argument and perhaps something of an elegy too. Most music now is consumed digitally and so is the artwork, an assembly of ones and zeros that appears on a multiplicity of screens, sometimes as a tiny square on a Spotify page on an iPhone. How true. Stanley's here to look back in anger perhaps a little, but also celebrate the humble album sleeve. Stanley, welcome. Hi. When and how do you think record covers became important? Because the, the, the fascinating thing about this piece, I hadn't thought about record covers in ages, mm. and you sort of you 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 explain that they became important. Well, I sort of deduced it well, some years ago. Radiohead went out to uh, normally they they record in these hideous, leaking, haunted hulks in the middle of nowhere, but this time we went to an actual recording studio in the south of France with sun and wine and everything nice. Uh, and they actually, we, we actually had a piece in the TLS about it. The only interview they gave was in the TLS. Oh, was that who it was? Yeah, who Adam came Thorpe. To see us? Adam ah. Thorpe. Yeah, and, this be- and it was in a beautiful old I know, house. Oh, yes. So, so what it was, it you know, it was a really old building. Um, but before it had been sort of converted into a recording studio, it had been this amazing library, a sort of repository for recorded film and music. So there was a massive collection of VHS tapes. There was loads and loads of, of uh, cinefilm reels. But in terms of music, there were, there were um, wax cylinders. There were 78s, there were 45s, there were, you know, everything you could think of. And loads of CDs. It went up to the, to the world of CDs. But um, they had these, these lovely albums on the, on the shelves that had a little loop of cord that you, you pulled down so you didn't trash the, the spine when you pulled it out the shelf. And, and these were blank, a lot of them. They, they had sleeves ready to, for you to put your, your records in that you got from the record shop, usually in, it would have been in a blank sleeve. Yeah. And I was sort of fascinated by this because then, you know, I've done a bit of a thing with my, uh, in the past of doing ridiculously over-elaborate record packaging. <laughs> so I kind of thought, well, I'll do that. I'll take this. So for the one, the record they were doing then that become, became the Moonshake Pool, I, I made a, a version of this this album. You know, it was like a photo album, the old bound volumes. Yeah. And even the ones you buy now, they still hark back to that kind of leather-bound with a bit of gilding on, yeah. even though they're all plastic and that now. But there's a period where it was just plain, and then there was a then someone re- recognised that this was a place where you can advertise the wares inside. Yeah, and not just the wares inside. I've got some really old sleeves that have just got basically adverts on them. So they just because it was blank paper, so you could advertise anything: corned beef, you know, baked <laughs> beans. That could and, look, that, that would and work. They wouldn't did it? it on the sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. What would have been the first? I mean, insofar as we can pinpoint it what would have been an early example or the first person to put art rather than advertisements i have no idea what, what was the thought. first one that I you wonder, saw yeah. stanley the way you thought oh my god that's a that's an album cover i started buying records in the late 1970s so it was whatever was i think you know my first re- record was two by army it was um 
our friends electric you know it was yeah, on top yeah. of the pops and it was brilliant and I, I don't know how old i was about 11 or 12 12 probably and it was it was just great it had this sort of a mysterious world of which I knew nothing. Yeah. And, and did you sort of buy it on the basis of what it looked like? Though? Not that one. I okay. bought that on the basis of Top of the Pops. Oh, okay. The, the, but you, but the your Thursday arg- before. But your <laughs> argument in this is that you can judge a album by its cover. You can. Yes, it's a very flimsy argument. I make that flim- Stanley. Make that flimsy argument now. Now I want to hear this. I think that's because you think that. Covers are suggestive of styles. Yeah. So you could spot a progressive rock cover. Exactly. Yes. If if there was sort of Roger Roger Dean. Yeah. Or there was there were several artists who excelled in sort of fantasy. Yeah. Which is the sort of thing you get on on a on you know a cover of something like Lord of the Rings or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And and you knew that the music was going to be prog rock. Yeah. You know. And or if there was sort of sans serif fonts and which I didn't even know that that term then, but and that and quite. M- minimal photography and a big stripe of colour probably going to be jazz yeah you know you just sort of know and I was into metal up. when I was a kid and heavy metal oh god yeah the iconography of heavy metal I mean you know heavy metal yeah. I met the bloke away. who invented that Eddie character you know the kind in of in Iron Maiden yeah so yeah. do you know about this theory? <laughs> yeah. Do you know Eddie? Horrible yeah. Do you know how to do? I do. Well, yeah. I, mean, just, I went to university. Yeah. <laughs> you can't avoid these things. I, There's always someone. I wasn't particularly I was, into metal. My whole family's into Iron Maiden, and I grew up listening to Iron Maiden. Wow. Um, and the, the best thing about the, the records that they sold, not only were they, they were the amazing album cover, the Eddie album cover, the records themselves were shaped like Eddie's features. So yeah. instead of being circular, they were cut into yeah. the shape of... The drawings. Yeah, so that's amazing because that shows they they cared considerably more about image than music quality. <laughs> and because, that would have been a lot of work. Well, well, hang, hang on, is, hang on, hang on. <laughs> what we started, what we're saying here. Well, this is this is something else I learned is that picture discs, yeah. really bad sound quality. Yeah, well, I can believe because it's a bit of paper. I thought you were between... criticising the musicianship of I Maiden for a second. Well, I never dreamed of doing you. such a thing. <laughs> I want to hear about twenty jazz funk greats by Throbbing Gristle. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, should we have heard of Throbbing? Thea, have you yes. heard of? Yes, of course. We even had a piece. I commissioned a piece about them when? about a year, two years ago. Ben Easton wrote it. So he oh. Obviously, hasn't read it. I know. I know. Read a paper Are you the editor of the TLS? Anyway, tell us about Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> moving swiftly on. Yeah, exactly. It's humiliating. Go on. Well, Throbbing Gristle were. I, I again, I heard one of their records on John Peel or something like that. You know, late at night listening to my little transistor radio. Yeah. And then I sort of, because of that, that's what I mean, it's sort of like music um, and the sleeves of of records were sort of gateway drug into all sorts of knowledge that I wouldn't have ever come across. It's almost an education because mm, there's yeah. cultural reference. I said that because it's a, it's a really easy idea what an idiot I was. So I'd never heard of, of the Bauhaus, you know, as, as the art movement in Germany before the Second World War and everything it led to. So, you know, as everyone who listens to this or reads the TLS will know what the Bauhaus is and what influence it's had on everything from furniture to architecture and everything else in between. So I didn't know any of that, but there was a band called Bauhaus yeah. whose music I liked. I bought that their records and realised that their the design on the label of the records was a Bauhaus yeah. construction and then went to the library and got out a book which was also called Bauhaus, which was a little... Black spined sort of Thames and Hudson. Yeah. Do you know what? Because we had a piece about by a guy called DJ Taylor about the Jam, and he was saying that the Jam was a really good example of a band where people there were it was it, inside it were also didacts, and they'd basically gone. They had libraries. They went to libraries, yeah. and you got references, deliberate references to Auden or someone like that. Mm-hmm. And not only were they showing that they educated themselves. They left a legacy of people who would have found a reference and, and yeah. well, what's that, and then gone off and found it and, yeah. and then and I mean, this is sort of I think that you can kind of trace this dissemination of knowledge because like universities used to be the repositories of knowledge and you had to go to university to learn anything really proper properly clever but you could only go there if you were really rich and went to a private school but then they democratized university education and all these grammar school boys and girls went to to uni and then they people like Ridley Scott, for example, yeah. or, or David Bailey, for example, people who, who come from a non-posh background and then they have access to culture and knowledge yeah. and, it, and that spreads. And then it, that spreads even further out into popular culture and you get it on the sleeve of a 45 record in a shop in Essex and I can go and buy it and learn all about Mies van der Rohe and all that sort of thing. Yeah. 
something in particular about coming across art on a record um, sleeve. It sort of reminds me a bit of skateboard culture as well, how you can kind of come across art and music and literary references in a particular context that is it's not top down and it's almost, it's almost like the art and these references are secondary to this other thing which you know you love. Yeah. So there's something non-threatening about it and it's democratic and it's up to you whether you follow um, up on them yes. and you don't know that they have already been judged to be good um, by someone else who knows. Like you say about skateboard culture, it's, it's, I think each generation has its own way in and it's it has to be something that that the old people your olds don't get yeah. exactly. you know they don't understand what it is why do what do you see in that exactly you know? and that's what's so cool sorry about the way you're talking about um record sleeve art is that it was designed for young people mm. by young people mm. yeah. so there's a real sense of yeah the demo you make the point that the democracy actually goes in all directions because yeah. because no one knew the value of it they let untried people have a popper yeah. So it gave them. A, like I also me. The, 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 exactly. And you've done how many record sleeves Since you done for Radiohead? I don't know to be honest. A lot. Many. Lost. What's the <laughs> <your first track? laughs> Radiohead, and indeed, I mean, I think all music to then turn it into an artistic representation is very hard. How do you go about designing a cover for Radiohead? Mm. Do you? Do you? It sort of differs from time to time. I. It's in many ways that I don't really have to do very much because it's there. In the music, and you're there at the recording. Mm, yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That you're so you when they go off to their lovely chateau in France to record, yeah, you're that there. That was as well. only the once. Normally, it's a <laughs> sort of decrepit, yeah. horrible, haunted. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. But you are there. Are you there? For, but you're there as part of the process. Yeah, yeah, yes. And what yeah. are you doing while you're there? Then are you soaking it up and then? Yeah, I, I guess normally I, I kind of normally have some ideas that I want to express and the plan normally is that I will use the media of Radiohead's record covers to get my ideas out to the general public but that doesn't really work <laughs> so um, and while I'm there that you listen to the music and then I, I kind of find that the music draws its artwork itself and really yeah. it's fishing for it and trying to catch what it is and they're quite a collaborative bunch I mean like I said this interview that I read they, they seem like quite a nice collaborative bunch it's slightly like a, um, a religious retreat or something. <laughs> so everyone, you know, we kind of meet at meal times and talk and stuff like that, and then, and everyone goes off and does their own things, or sometimes come together, and it's, it's like being in a, in a weird, in a nunnery. <laughs> we're we're a bunch of nuns, really. A rock and roll nunnery. A rock and roll nunnery. Yeah. Uh, should we be depressed, Stanley? Because, you you end on a slightly low note, which is. I pretty much listen to m most of my music on Spotify now. Ah. It's quite good, though, the, the on online music, I think, because I'm finding loads of music that I'd never have heard of. Even more than when you're in a record shop. Because I was thinking about the point the theory was making about discovery. Oh, man, record shops are even worse than were than when I was young now. I'm even really intimidated. Because yeah, I've sort of I've missed the point. Now. Well, when I was young, I didn't think I was cool enough because everyone was a bit older than me and really cool in a record shop. And now, like, time's just really passed. And now I'm like, kind of like like that granddad character. <laughs> I like record for my gramophone. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Are they crazy hipster places now? I bet they are. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I quite... I think I, I probably would have become a hipster if I was cool enough you or are young a, enough. You are a hipster. Am what I? Yeah, of course you're a hipster. Oh, man. What's that? What is a hipster? Stanley's a hipster. No, what? what is a hipster? I don't know. This isn't helpful. No, no, no. Yeah. At the record shop when I was growing up in Loughborough was called... <laughs> I'm glad you're here, otherwise we'd just go on and on and on about all sorts of things. What? But, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also... I live, I live in a, a relatively small town. We have two record shops, and neither of them are even remotely intimidating. Really? They're, oh. they're not intimidating places. My the place true. I went with as a kid was a place called Left-Legged Pine. Apple. And it was, but it was more of it. That's the name of the shop. Mm. But it was more of a CD shop. I was there, yeah. and but even then, you remember? I remember going through CD racks. Make a different noise, clap. clap yeah, exactly. Oh, that, yeah. that was a play. I mean, we're now now we're old. <laughs> we're the worst. We're kind yeah. of nostalgic hipsters. Yeah, here, aren't not we? that kind of flat, flat, flat. Yeah. But do you think the artwork yeah. suffered digitally? Is that an art? I mean, is that an art? Well, I d when I by the time I started making records, which was about uh, uh, 1994, it was already CDs. There was vinyl. Um, because I remember the first before we did anything, we went into me and Tom went into um, some shop in Oxford High Street, like HMV or one of the big ones, and it, and they have 
high ceilings, a great big wall covered in 12-inch mm. records. And, and we was like, right, so we've got to do something better than all of those. <laughs> and we're like, how did they do it? I was like, oh, they, most of them have got faces on them. They've got the faces of the singer. We can't have that. So because th- we haven't done that yet. You got on the faces. I've so done their faces. So is this the f- before? Was it Pablo Honey? Was it the first? one? No, I didn't do that one. Which uh, one? Is, what was your first? First one? one was a single, but and uh, from the Benz. So I oh, did the Benz. You did the Benz. Mm. And so did you? Did you know you had to do something big? Would, were you feeling like this had to be a statement that you had to do? And when you? Oh God, I didn't. know. I was only about twenty-four or something. I don't. Twenty-five. Yeah. I don't know. At the time, I wasn't really interested in. Uh, anything in particular I just want I think I'd wanted to do artwork I didn't really want to do art but I did you by a mistake did you find yourself ever feeling frustrated that it wasn't on a wall like a painting yeah I mean that all of the, the artwork that you've done these beautiful things that you'd created you did you ever feel slightly like you wanted it to be on a wall rather than you know if you think of a record shop you mm. could only unless you pulled it out you'd only see kind of two-thirds yeah, of it unless they sold loads and then they unless, yeah exactly yeah, they put yeah. it on the wall yeah, um, not really, no, because the first time I saw the Benz on, in a record shop, I think it came out and we were we were in Nottingham or somewhere, I went into a record shop because I was like, I wonder if it's out. And I was up there next to uh, Paul Weller record, actually, Stanley Road, that yeah. um, Peter Blake had done. I was right next to Peter Blake. Wow. To be honest, <laughs> it's better than being on a wall. That was just like... <laughs> yeah. You made and that's, it. And that's where all this stuff about it being a democratic art gallery, that's kind of where my kind of thinking about that came from, was just like, oh, wow, look, so... There's no hierarchy in, in the shop. It, well, there is. Depends on who sells the most records, but which is a kind of meritocracy in, in some ways. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. yeah, we could talk about this for, for ages, but we better leave it there. Stanley Donwell, thank you so much for coming in. That's absolutely fine. Thank you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Charlotte Perriand, the designer and architect, and we'll talk about why the words should go that way round in a moment, was born in Paris in 1903 and died also in Paris 96 years later. There's a neat loop to her life which spanned the whole of the 20th century and her career which, in a way, Keith Miller suggests this week, circles back to a simple choker necklace made of ball bearings, first conceived while a student in the mid-1920s. But don't let this idea of neatness fool you into thinking there weren't many phases to Perriand's creation, which moved from the luxe industriel, lots of steel and pony skin, to cheapish prefabs made of plywood and the nature-led projects of the 1950s and 60s, most famously a mountain township near the French border with Switzerland. For those unfamiliar with Perriand's work, by the way, I highly recommend Google imaging it or some other search engine. Uh, and you might spend a pleasant hour imagining a new life for yourself, as I did. Keith. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I went down such a rabbit hole. I mean, yes. Um, anyway, Keith Miller has read four volumes by Jacques Barzac on Perriand's complete works, and he joins us in the studio to tell us more now. Hello, Keith. Hello. Well, it's difficult to know quite how to pitch a piece on Perriand, I think, because it's not 
necessarily a question of remembering this forgotten or neglected figure because she's not she's not really either of those two things. No, and I think you know she's responsible or collectively responsible with with a team of other designers for for a very very sort of canonical high modernist look. Uh, she didn't she made furniture, but she also kind of orchestrated interiors for a number of Le Corbusier's projects before and after the war. And then the stuff she did on her own later on is a very sort of distinctive kind of chunky mid century aesthetic. But is she is she well known? I mean, it may just be my own ignorance, but this didn't feel like a figure who was. Well, it's kind of fair to say that people will know Le Corbusier and Jean Prouvé and people who she worked with more. I agree. I agree exactly. I agree with that. I think they don't know Prouvé as as well as they should, to be honest. But um, but you know, people who are at all interested in twentieth century design will know of her. And and there's also been a slightly kind of dialectical thing where her reputation was not rebuilt; it never completely went away. But there there was a whole issue about the authorship of some of the furniture designs from the late twenties, which were reissued in 1959, and um, for possibly sound commercial reasons she was slightly sort of airbrushed out of the picture at that stage in favor of Le Corbusier yeah in fact well Le Corbusier sort of owned the, the kind of overall intellectual property I think and, the, and, and he did split the royalties with, with um, his cousin Pierre Genere and, and with Perrion but they went out kind of under his mark I think as that it happened were. quite a lot in all because it happened with Fitzgerald sure. didn't it that Zelda wrote articles and F Scott put his name put to his them. name to them and that was because that was the way of monetizing it better as a, as a thing yeah, and, and, and obviously there's a sort of, potentially there's a kind of gender dimension to that as well. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, look, we say was a, a bit, are we allowed to say bastard? He was yeah, a bastard so. in lots of yeah. ways. He was a sort of bit of a fascist in some ways and, yeah. and a challenging man. But he did sort of orchestrate this group of very talented people whose talents he, he kind of acknowledged and didn't quite exploit, but he placed them under the overall umbrella of his kind of, Style. He talked about a, a, a fosse creative, I think, as, as a thing that he had, that, that all the sort of individuals working in his atelier, both before the war and after the war, um, didn't have, although they, could, they were very good at chairs or they were very good at kind of walls or you know, whatever they were good at. Is it wrong um, to say that he... Because I mean, it's always... It now correctly feels a bit odd every time you find a sort of female artist to sort of trace this influence in her life as this dominant male, but is that probably true in, in, in the sense of... Capuzio, did he did he did he shape her the way she created things? I think it's really hard to tell. I mean, the, you know, the development. There's, I've got a proof of, of the page in front of me, and, and there's a very celebrated set of images where she, as it were, modelled on the, this sort of uh, chaise long, which is made of a, an arc of two arcs of tubular steel with a sort of sinuous bit that you recline on on top of it, and it's very very sort of recognisable, canonical, modernist thing. And you know, the drawings for that are in her hand. So I think a lot of the kind of credit for devising that goes to her. However, there are broadly similar things in different materials that quite a lot of people are producing. You know, this, this is a sort of zeitgeist thing. So even beyond Le Corbusier's atelier, the question of whether he dominated that in an unhealthy way or a chauvinistic way, there was this sort of sense of fellow travellers, I think, at the time. I, I mentioned in my piece that there's a, there's a sort of device that Perrion uses in a, in a very elegant armchair, which is clearly sort of pinched, basically, from Marcel Breuer, who's one of the people at the Bauhaus, just a couple of years earlier. So there's a lot of kind of cross-currents in a lot of different directions. And, you know, the fact, it, it, if you like the sort of scandal, is that there's only one Charlotte Perrion, so we can't infer too much from her case because there aren't enough women working in the industry for, for us to sort of see patterns. And she herself seems to have been incredibly sort of reticent about being viewed as a kind of, you know, a woman designer. She wanted her sort of private life kept out of the office. She sort of demurred when sometimes attempts were made to kind of flatter her as, as, as a sort of... You know, you wonder somebody whether she who automatically have... understood kind of the nurturing side of domestic design. And she sort of responds to th- comments like that with just a sort of dignified silence, really. So I would on the basis of quite a sort of scant uh, engagement. I wouldn't want to, to put her gender at, at the forefront of her career, really. And yet you get the sense that she probably would have bristled slightly, at least, at being asked to model her own work in, in a way that probably one of her contemporaries well, wouldn't I, have. I don't know about the context of this. I mean, I, I th- you know, I think it, you know, th- these poses, and they are very... Um, there's something kind of voluptuous about them because the, the chrome steel, the curvy bit, sits on top of a steel frame and and it it, it? it moves very freely so you can have your legs up in the air or your head up in the air it's a it's a very sort of elegant simple and are these uh, these designed i never quite know with these things are these how much are these designed practically and and how much are they designed because we have a piece by joyce carol oates talks about frank lloyd wright and his idea of 
buildings being organic they really are to yeah. be to be lived in when we're talking about high modernism and furniture and even when you talk about Bauhaus actually it feels to me we're talking about stuff that's designed to be looked at and would be a bit uncomfortable to sit on yeah it's too perfect for, yeah um, um, well I don't know I mean we you know I have my partner has and I know occasionally sit in a cheapo copy of Charlotte Perriand's shares and it's too small for me but it's like a normal well. sofa you know a habitat sofa isn't too small for me because i can adjust myself on it whereas yeah. this is very rigid in terms of yeah. you know you can you can put your legs up in the air but your bum's got to go in a particular place so there is this sort of it's another of these slightly sort of lazy critical discourses around modernism that it's too rigid and that the human imperfections are sort of never uh, and i think you know actually like somebody like le corbusier who's you know and, and we know a lot about what le corbusier thought he was doing because he wrote a lot and he wrote a lot of kind of polemic and, and he wrote very beautifully he wrote a lot of, i think he has got this sort of sense of high art and there's a point at which kind of functionalism um, is elevated and he actually only uses the term architecture very sparingly to talk about the correct and magnificent play of forms in light or something and he sees it as a sort of a, an aesthetic realm that's slightly over and above the more utilitarian consideration and that feeds down like, like Perron talks about liberating materials that she's using in, in the late 20s from the ghetto of hospitals and schools and sort of industrial where they're actually being used where they're actually being used in, in a much more kind of work a day way and, and you know there'd be you know there's loads of tubular steel furniture starting to happen because the technology for extruding yeah. it and producing it is just coming online and did her I mean you mentioned um, Le Corbusier's pol- politics before her politics clearly influenced the work <clears throat> is it fair to say that it increasingly influenced it as you as you kind of as she found her own feet and became more of a designer in her own right. I think it increasingly led to sort of tensions with with Le Corbusier. Um, it's, it's a slight sort of calumny to call him a fascist, but he does, you know, that he does occasionally use anti-Semitic language. One of his friends was a fascist. It, it's partly about the very complicated politics of France during the war years. I mean, mm. you know, he he did go to Vichy France and he did try and get commissions from from it, and then he came back to Paris. And after the war, he became a kind of great. Um, Apostle for for you know the better future and a, a rebuilt world that was going to be more egalitarian. So, but she, I think, is is just very st- strongly socialist. What she thought very seriously about going to live in in Russia for a while in the nineteen thirties, mm. and she continued to hold those beliefs as far as one can tell. But but yes, you know, her biggest architectural commission is designing a ski resort, and I'm not sure how socialist that is. Really. Yeah, I think it was a, pri- a private commission for the Maharaja. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were her politics divorced from her designs? I mean, is there anything you can do to to link the two together maybe maybe not well you know Keir Hardy said nothing nothing is too good for the working classes he was spotted dining at the Savoy and, and actually there's no reason not to do any particular gig you get as well as you can possibly do it I suppose yeah. uh, and also you know I think through Perron worked with this guy Jean Prouvé who was a, who was a great pioneer of mass production and he mm. actually started to think about how you could use the techniques of industrialization to to roll out all the brilliant ideas that everyone had been having in the 20s and 30s. Le Corbusier at that point was also thinking more about kind of mass or more pragmatically maybe about mass housing. He'd done a lot of very utopian, very drastic schemes before the war, but after the war there are these things called the Unité d'habitation which are, are like a a kind of one-size-fits-all, yeah. very ingenious, not unproblematic, but kind of magnificent. The first time you sort of have that sense, which we're quite familiar with now, of sort of high couture having a sort of high street, real-world application. So you might have things that are done at the, the highest end, but there is a clear pathway from that to yeah. mass production and, 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 and general general usage. A number of factors come together after the war, one of which is the war, so you need to rebuild a lot because a lot of stuff's been flattened. Um, And there's a sort of slow advance of technology and it all kind of comes together and, and, you know, suddenly a lot of the paper dreams of of kind of 20s and 30s do turn into reality. And then, of course, they they become events in the real world and they become the subjects of of kind of backlash and different kinds of discourse, you know, the sort of... Prince Charles kind of walls are breaking down, aren't they? And and, you know, social mobility has increased, and and the ability of things to to, to mingle and merge seems to be be increased after the war, very obviously, because all sorts of yeah, potentially. I mean, I think there's a sort of you know, there's a very this is a very glib sort of oversimplification of mine, but I think there's a way in which in France and in the Netherlands and in Germany, actually, that the, the sort of bourgeoisie embraced modernism before the war. And, for example, a lot of refugees from Nazism brought their Bauhaus furniture with them, whether it was to New York or Tel Aviv or London, you know. Um, so so they're, they're kind of individual vectors for a set of ideas. 
um, and they themselves kind of take up maybe slightly more influential social positions in the normal run of the, of the progress through their own lives and their own careers. Partly just the ideas kind of take a while to bed in, I think. She wasn't in Europe during the Second World War, or she wasn't, by the time the Nazis rolled into Paris, she was in Japan. Yeah, she was on a kind of design quango, basically. She was, she was there for a sort of French kind of design organisation to, to look at Japanese design. Because and she, she was already interested in it, and yeah. as were a lot of the, the modernists, the sort of the idea of purity and the idea of the, the aestheticization of everyday mm. life. Obviously, that's, that's really embedded in, in Japanese culture. You know. And then she was interned, and she had to spend a couple of years in, in Vietnam, which is where she met her second husband, I think, possibly, possibly already in Japan. Anyway, But um, that continued to be very influential. I lo- a lot of her sort of furniture from the 50s and 60s is quite Japanese-looking. Yeah, she found a sort of, well, tradition being new, a way of bringing the two supposedly opposing things together. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, slightly avant la lettre, she seems to have got more interested in sustainability as well. I mean, you know, that's a that's a very sort of happening word yeah. now, but it's, it's not a great insult to her to say that she wasn't particularly interested in the craft herself. She wasn't sort of... I mean, she designs very tactile objects, but then other people tend to, to make them. It's sounds um, like she's kind uh, of right. I mean, I, I know you don't think she needs to be rediscovered, but she's kind of feels slightly ripe for for rediscovery or more broad discovery don't you think i would think so why did you lose yourself i still what, what, what part of it oh i just it's that whole period of kind of 1950s architecture when jean prouvé was working on his kind of big mm. uh unité d'habitation that you were talking about that sort of style i love it so much it's just my ideal with the kind of the use of wood on the outsides and all of these cheap fabrics and the the fact that they would commission these um these spaces with a real sense of the space that a human needed to live well, yeah. not just to exist, yeah. to and live not, well. Not, sometimes the, a lot of the designs from the 20s and 30s are slightly kind of monastic, yeah. except for these big, very expensive villas. And really thinking about where they were building them. So if you look at Perrion's things, buildings, the township that she built in the Haute-Savoie, you've got the use of glass that reflects mm. the, the hill, the mountains, so that the space, they absorb each other in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, you know, really modernist architecture is going to look terrible on a beautiful alpine uh, mountainside, but it it doesn't. And the the roofs of at least one of the blocks do a sort of zigzag, so they're they're actually mirroring the the form of the mountain. So that's why. All right, I'm going to go off and Google (laughs) it. Everyone listening should go off and Google it. Um, Keith Miller, thank you so much for for telling us about it. Uh, Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Emily Bernhard-Jackson, Stanley Donwood and Keith Miller. Do have a look at our design issue of the TLS and read at least these two pieces as well as what you've heard on the podcast. Joyce Carol Oates does Frank Lloyd Wright and there is just an extraordinary piece of writing about the layout of Auschwitz by Nikolaus Waxman. That's one of the best things I've read about that terrible place. Next week, we were in the realm of science fiction theatre and I was going to say Lucy Dallas is going to come in and guide us, but she's not around. She's going to be in space. She's written a piece arguing for one of her crazy sci-fi things that we've talked about on this podcast. We made a deal, I think, as a result of this podcast, potentially. I think possibly, yeah. But she's not going to be here. So we'll have to find some other people. Where are you on science fiction? Knowledgeable? Um, Not really, no. So we'll be the useful idiots. We'll find someone who is. We'll be the useful idiots, as ever. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.